0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, also known as the Ant Hill. Today is Monday, January the 16th, 2012, and this is episode 821 of the Survival Podcast. And though you're rocking on your Monday wherever you are, I'm not actually here. No, I'm in Las Vegas, Viva Las Vegas, at the 2012 SHOT Show. And I left this show behind for you. It's a Monday, so it's Listener Feedback Day. These are all emails, commentary, comments, articles, stuff like that that came to me at jack at com. If you want to participate in a show like this, please understand I get hundreds of emails a day for shows like this. I can only put maybe a dozen on the air a week, so a lot of them are not going to get through. But I do try to read them all, look at them all, become aware of them all. And I do put a lot of stuff that doesn't make it on the show Out on Facebook and Twitter. So keep sending them to me. Putting something like question for Jack, article for Jack, comment for Jack in the subject line will help you ensure that you're not spam filtered or just lost in the deluge that is my daily email. Uh, Before we go to get to the stuff that you sent in for uh, this week, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Mers. MERS-radio.com. Yes, MERS and then a hyphen and then a word radio.com. MERS radio is cool, and I'll tell you why. Because it allows you to combine a secondary communications method on your property with security. So not only can you communicate with other members of your family, your group, over about a mile or two of their range on a set of frequencies that are not that well used. So you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, and you got five frequencies and five sub frequencies to work with there. Uh, Additionally, you can put motion sensors on your property that will speak back through your handhelds and your base station and say things like alert sector one or alert sector two by detecting movement and heat if somebody or something is prowling around a place you don't want them. It's really cool. You should check them out. And Rob Belville over there who runs MERS radio, um, he doesn't have like 400, you know, products. He has like a dozen. He knows everything he has cold. So if you have a question like, can I or should I or will this, and you call him, you get a, you know, a person that actually understands what you're saying and you can understand what they're saying that says, yes, no, or you can, but this is what you need to do, or my solution will work for you to this point, and then beyond that you should go here and get something else. You know, It's nice to deal with a company that actually can answer your questions for you, uh, unlike, I don't know, Microsoft or something. Anyway, uh, next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Sponsor. Safe Castle was the first company that ever came to me and said, Jack, we want to be an official sponsor of the show. What do we have to do to form that long-term relationship? And Vic uh, Vic did a lot to, lot back on reciprocating, on making sure that this has lasted as long as it has. Again, it's been over three years since Safe Castle became a sponsor. That says something about things, especially in the age of the Internet and podcasts. Are you kidding me? Three years as a sponsor? And they also support the members' support brigade with their uh, discount buyers club. That's forty nine bucks for everybody uh, else, but members' support brigade members, you get it for free. And you get big discounts on everything Safe Castle sells forever. How cool is that? And what do they sell? Long-term storage food, tactical stuff, you name it. If it's the kind of stuff you think of for prepping, you can probably find it there. Great pricing, great service, great selection. Check them out today. They're at prepared.pro. Now, the best way to make sure you're dealing with my sponsors and not some cheap imitator, go to the survivalpodcast.com first and click on one of their banners in the right hand margin. Next up, remember you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And the reason you should do, especially Facebook or Twitter, is because again, a lot of times I get really in- interesting information from the audience that I cannot fit into shows like this and I'll put them out there. Really cool stuff coming on YouTube in the next month as well. Next up today, I want to remind you, you can join the member support brigade to support the show. You'll be supporting the show if you do that at 18.3 cents an episode. So if you get done with the show and you think that's worth a couple dimes, maybe you should join the member support brigade. And help support what we're doing here. And if you do that, you'll get over $150 worth of free eBooks the day you join. You'll get discounts to over 32 vendors, and you'll get some exclusive content that's available nowhere else. And you can display that highly valued Member Support Brigade badge in the forum if you're a forum person. And uh, by the, I was going to get questions. How do I do that? You just... Um, you just get, uh, you just copy the, the the badge and you put it into your signature. There's a forum thread on how to do that. I'll I'll put that in the show notes today because I get that question probably a couple times a week. So if you've ever wondered how do I display an image in my uh, in my signature on the forum, I'll put a link to the post that discusses how to do that today. All right, with that we've got everything wrapped up. I'm ready to get into the main topic of today's show, which of course is your questions, and I'll try to pick a variety of things, and some things dovetail together, uh and try to make this an exciting show. It is a Saturday, uh, that, for me, anyway, while I'm doing this, so I left some of the deeper, heavier stuff behind this week because, well, I wanted to get through the day quick and get back on home so we could pack and get out of here in the morning. And I also got playoff football to watch, and we'll see how my picks worked out. Uh, first question comes in from Ann. And Anne says, trying to figure out if we're wasting money by hanging on to an old technology. I know this shit's not going to hit the fan tomorrow, but in your opinion, are we being wasteful or smart by hanging on to our landline and not dumping it for VOIP? If we dump, we save about $25 a month we could put elsewhere. We don't use the landline much, but if infrastructure goes to hell in a handbasket, we're probably screwed for communication anyway, right? Uh, no long-range radios in the house, just close-range radios, And Um... This is a personal decision. I mean, going to VOIP, here's one of the big things you've got. You do not get advanced 911 support. So if you don't have you don't have a landline in your home and you call uh, 911 with VOIP, you get what you get. Or if you call with your cell phone, you don't get – see, the, the thing about the landline is if you pick the phone up, dial 911, and fall over because that's all you can get done, and you are on a landline, somebody's coming to your house uh, as quickly as resources allow. So this is not so much because of total critical infrastructure failure, but the more likely thing of an individual emergency or if you're injured to the point where you can't communicate and explain where you're calling from. When you're on a cell phone or VOIP, they may not be able to find you, especially on VOIP. So that's the biggest reason I can give you to keep it. Um, the other thing we could say is people have been concerned recently that the government might shut the Internet down. And if you have a landline, you can always use a dial-up ISP somewhere else that maybe isn't shut down, which is what people in Egypt did. Though if it was done in the United States, it would probably be far more sophisticated than what Egypt did. There is there is some justification there. It's an always-on technology unless the, the, uh, the infrastructure itself is damaged. In other words, a pole collapses, a line snaps, a backhoe cuts it in half. So even when the power's out, you have a phone, right? I mean, that's that's a big part of landline phone technology now personally I understand all this and we don't have a landline up at our house I just don't think it's worth it we have two cell phones and uh, th- you know that's our primary means of communication. It's important then to make sure you keep them charged up and things like that, and have backup ways to charge them, like a car charger or something. See, it doesn't have to be a lot of the backup power it doesn't have to be complicated. You know, an inverter for your vehicles. If you put a decent inverter in each vehicle, just keep it under the seat or whatever. You, and if you've got two family, you know, two car family. Well, you've got two sources of electricity that just by idling for a while can be recharged. Uh, the batteries can even be pulled out, taken in the house. Uh, your inverter's hooked up to them and used, them when they need to be recharged, back out, start the car up. Don't use them both until they're both dead, then you won't be able to get the car started again. But, kinda, you kinda get the point there. And, you know, if you picked up a couple extra batteries that you kept, you know, stored properly in your, in your, uh, in your garage, you could always, uh, extend that whole system. So, uh, not really a question you asked, but that's just, kind of leads me off to think about that backup power stuff and uh, one thing we should probably do is another show someday on backup power on like um We'd say like gorilla backup power, you know, like a uh, you know ditch backup power. Nothing complicated, no fancy, uh, no, nothing fancy. Something that we backup systems that we could build with the stuff that's already in our home. If you'd be interested in a show like that, let me know in the show, the show notes comments today. All right, next up today, this one comes in from Matt. Matt says he wants to give me his condolences on the Steelers' loss. Uh, but he's a Broncos fan, and it was a big win for him. Again, I'll say to you guys that are Broncos fans, um, congratulations, man. It was a great game, and uh, I, I have no ill will after that game. Uh, when, when two teams leave it on the field uh, and, and my Steelers were banged up, pfft, hey, man, that's just the way it is, and, and Tebow did play a great game. Okay, and hopefully he'll do good this weekend. Again, I like watching the guy do well. I just have my skepticism long term. Anyway, here's this actual question. One question on culture. Has there been a study on yield performance for large-diameter logs versus small-diameter logs, limbs, and branches? I'm thinking of cutting down some golden elm and lilac bushes in my yard and building up the beds on top of them along with some pine, poplar, firewood. But if large logs are better than branches, I might go find some logs. Since I just moved into the new house, I now have the opportunity of to garden. I'm planning on getting beds set up before I do any planning. Look forward to enjoying the reduction in irrigation, especially here in Colorado. Thanks for all you do. Matt. Um, here's the thing on Hulu Culture. I think everybody keeps trying to make this complicated, and it's not. It's not complicated at all. It's a bunch of wood. And as it sits under the ground and begins to decompose, it becomes spongy and it holds water and it has a life cycle. And it will only, it's only going to last so long before it's going to break down to its component parts. If we use smaller pieces, the life cycle is shortened. If we use larger pieces, the life cycle is lengthened. That's really about it. Now, yield study. I, guys, man, we're growing food in our backyard. We're not trying to recreate massive agricultural systems here. But, even with that said, let me tell you that you might find that if you used ch- chopped up coarse materials and you were, you know, like more like wood chips and you were growing something like, I don't know, blueberries, that maybe under certain circumstances and certain moisture levels, those wood chips would tend to move toward the acid spectrum of the pH faster and it might increase the yields of blueberries or cranberries or lingonberries. But then it might take something that prefers a more neutral to a more basic soil and decrease yield. You, we don't really know. All you can do is try. I would tell you that to me it makes, a, it makes sense to use large pieces of material. That's what Sepp Holzer does. That extends the life of the situation. But if I had a whole bunch of small material around and I was going to build a garden bed anyway, would I put it in there and know that I'm getting some hugelkultur effect? Yes. I think the big thing that we, here's what we need to do, guys, okay? If we really want to answer these questions, stop worrying about it. I'm not picking on Matt, by the way. If you think I am, I'm not. I'm just saying, because I get so many questions, well, what if this and what if that? And the answer is I don't know. I just don't know. I, I've built some beds in a couple different ways. I'll share the results as they come in. But what we really need to do maybe is to uh, put as many variable solutions out there as possible and let's report on the results. And then let's, let's be smart about this too because here's the thing. okay? Matt's in Colorado. He may get a completely different set of results using the exact same structures, growing the exact same crops as somebody doing it in Georgia. And we need to understand that just because something doesn't work real well for somebody in one climate doesn't mean it won't work well in the other. And a lot of these horticulture questions, we're not going to answer them until we just start doing it. So, uh, I would say, when in doubt, bury wood and plant stuff in it and see what happens. I mean, honest to God, I'm not being I'm not being curt on that or anything. I just think that's the. If you want to know, do it and see what happens. Um, you're not going to die if your tomatoes are slightly less yielding than if you had done it another way and what I think we'll find if we start building these systems and using them as they're designed, which is polyculture systems it's not like we build a bed and cover it with corn so multiple plantings and multiple plants and, and multiple beds in multiple locations on our property we'll find that certain plants do better at a certain, like if we do a, a raised one, some will do really well planted in the top, some will do planted well down lower in the system, some will do better on the west side of the berm, some on the east side of the berm, or the south or the north, or all different types of things. And this is this is something that's ancient. And brand new at the same time. It's an ancient technology. It's been around since probably man stuck, you know, pulled the first fruit pit out of his mouth and shoved it in the ground to see what would happen and realized that that place over there where the, all the organic matter built up on top of the log that fell down, uh, lots of stuff was growing there. So that was a good place to plant it. But because of our obsession with monocropping and modern agriculture, the technology was ignored and forgotten. And people like Sep have just simply brought it back. And now we need to do the research ourselves. And and instead of thinking, I, I think there's a propensity, like, we think that, like, we have to, like, worry about what some textbook says or some study says or something like that. We're growing food, folks. Plan it. See what happens. And just have, what you need is the fearless. Remember when you were a kid and you were fearless? Like, you would just, like, you could try something for the first time. You would just go do it and see what happened. That's that's where all the advancements are going to be made in in agriculture and permaculture going forward. People just doing it, just hitting the ground with it and seeing what happens. It reminds me of what Joel Salatin said. You know that some people, you know, remember your grandmother saying if something's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And he says that's actually grandma got that one wrong. If something's worth doing, it's worth doing wrong a hundred times until you figure out how to do it right. And just do it and see what happens. You're gonna get some of it right right from the get-go. That's my real advice on hookah culture. Woody material, whatever you can get buried under good quality humus and organic matter and compost and plant into it. And everybody that's done it has had some success. And I think you'll find your success if you get active with it. But personally, if you want the system to last longer use larger pieces of material. Uh, and if you want to know everything there is to know about it, get Sepp Holzer's Permaculture. It's his new book, Sepp Holzer's Permaculture, and uh, you can find out everything that Sep knows about it, which is a hell of a lot more than I do. Uh, a little report here, not really a question. This is from Sam. Sam says, Hi Jack, love the show. Last weekend, my girlfriend and I had the opportunity to attend an IDPA match at a local range. I've done some training on my own land with friends, but have never tried IDPA or any other official matches. We had no idea what we needed to bring other than safety equipment or carry guns, but we went and figured we'd learn as we go. The guys doing the match were awesome. We were put into a group with an amazing instructor who taught us a lot, By the end of the match, we were actually doing quite well. We learned that our equipment was not perfect and our skills could use some honing. At the end of the day, we were invited to return for 3-Gun next weekend. Just figuring I would share, we would never have gotten out and gotten involved if it weren't for the show inspiring us to do so. Hopefully our story will inspire other listeners to get out and get some training. Sam, I think that's awesome, and it's IDPA something that like I've always like, eh, maybe, and I just I'm so, so busy and never. But every single person that writes me or I talk to that's gone loves it they're like this is like one of the best things and maybe it's something my wife and I should do because we've been working on improving her gun handling skills and I keep telling her that she needs an instructor other than me because and I think that in most situations most spouses I don't care who the experienced one is whether it's the male or the female cuz there's households where the woman is a gun person and the guy just you know grew up as an East Coast liberal or something and he's Finally coming around. It don't matter which way it's going. There's a certain propensity for the old proverb that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And it's not that they don't listen. It's that it just doesn't flow as well. There's a, just a different relationship there. No one wants to be told by the person they love the most, you're doing that wrong. Uh, and when you're training, that's what you actually need to know is what you're doing wrong. So, IDPA may be many things to, to, uh, to expand, uh, uh, firearms training. If you have, uh, been to IDPA, if you're a proponent of it, if you enjoy it, comment in the show notes today. Let us know what your experience has been and what advice you have for people as far as getting involved. Um, next up today, um, this is on the blaze. And it's one of those stories, you know, that I almost didn't do today, but I was like, I gotta do some, Stuff that's kind of tough to talk about today because this is the Survival Podcast. Um, This is uh, just another one of those things where you look at the potential for global health issues, global epidemics, global pandemics, and um, you go, boy, I don't want it to be this thing. Um, here's a headline, again on com. Totally drug-resistant form of TB emerging in second country. TB, for those that maybe don't know, is tuberculosis. Let me read a little bit of the article to you. Three years after the first reports in the world of a totally drug-resistant TDR, is what they call that, form of tuberculosis TB in Iran, at least 12 cases of TDR-TB have been confirmed in India over the last few months. According to the Times of India, cases began emerging in October 2011, making it the second country to find this deadliest strain of TB among patients. The U.S. Center for Disease Control categorizes resistance levels of TB as a multi-drug resistant or extremely drug resistant. TDR is not even classified yet on the CDC's website, and there has been no reported cures for such a strain of this bacterium yet. In other words, they don't really—it's not doesn't—it doesn't officially exist in the records yet. That's how quickly thing's moving. Uh, What's worrying, according to the Times of India, is that 10 of the 12 cases were of city dwellers. The TB bacilli have obviously mutated. The emergence of TDR-TB has grave implications for public health, said Hindua Hospital's Dr. Zahir Urwadi whose observations have been published in the latest issues of U.S.-based Clinical Infectious Diseases Peer reviewed Journal. Dr. Amita Athwal, who heads up KM Hospital's chest department, said TDR-TB was a reality in India. The cases we clinically isolate are just the tip of the iceberg, she said. TB is one of the biggest killers in India, along with heart attack. So far, the Times of India reports that one of the 12 patients has died worldwide. There are 8.8 million incidents of TB. And 1.45 million deaths occurred in 2010, according to the World Health Organization. So 1.45 million people in the world last year died of tuberculosis, something we don't even really think about much anymore uh, in Western society. Uh, Wired refers to the first outbreak of TDRTB in 2009 in Iran as underreported in the media. It notes that while there were only 15 cases of the strain were reported then, 146 of the multi-drug Resistant version were cited, with a high percentage of those cases being among traveling immigrants. According to Wired, only two-thirds of the countries with forms of drug-resistant TB have labs capable of diagnosing the bacterium as resistant. This means that only about one in every ten patients with multi-drug resistant TB gets treated. The likelihood of treatment leading to cure ranges ranges widely. Estimates state that for every one person with TB, 15 could get infected Okay, so what does that mean? Uh, First of all, it means that of all the things out there that I'm afraid of being a global epidemic that would affect me directly, I want to tell you that this one goes pretty low on the list. Um, What we see with tuberculosis is the higher density areas where people are kept in close concentration, like third world prisons are really where, and, and third world cities are where we get a lot of transmission of tuberculosis. So, I think that we're more likely to deal with something – if we have to like, self-quarantine or something like that, it's more likely to be like a flu uh, variant or something to that effect, something that's an airborne transmittable disease, not this direct human-to-human requirement. Um, and But here's the scary part of TB – People get TB including these highly drug-resistant varieties and they they live a long time with it and they can go in a lot of places and they can spread it all over the flipping place. It used to be a very common disease that killed a lot of people in the United States before we developed things like antibiotics and drugs that could help treat this and in some cases... Basically, cure certain strains of it. In fact, the you know one of the most famous people that ever died of TB died in his 30s, and of course that was Doc Holliday of the famous you know the Erps and the holiday and and the OK Corral and shoot 'em up and all that. Yeah, Doc Holliday didn't go down in a hail of bullets; he went down in in, in blood-filled lungs. So it's a very very Awful disease, and it is highly contagious, and it 's something people can carry around for a long time, like if someone gets h one n one bird flu the, the actual one they 're laid up pretty quick, and it 's pretty easy to go, okay, this guy has got something really bad, and we need even in a in a third world country, we need to isolate him where a person with t b can be walking around a long time before they figured it out, and, and you you realize what it said that only a very small portion of the countries that have this now even have a lab capable of confirming it. So all they know is the guy's got tuberculosis because it seems like his symptoms match, but is it really drug-resistant or not? We'll just give him drugs and find out. Now, what does that do? Well, that increases the drug resistance. That, that makes the st- more virulent. So by just giving the person who's got the drug-resistant tuberculosis the exact drugs it's resistant to, if it's multi-drug resistant instead of total drug resistant, we're pushing it that way, that's probably how we got here. It just kind of reinforces the fact that um, we don't know what's going to happen in this world of epidemic, pandemic, disease, and that we're all equalized by this. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are, how much money you have. I mean, when you look at things that attack our bodies, things like cancer, um, What's was his name, Patrick Swayze died of pancreatic cancer, Uh, Steve Jobs Died of pancreatic cancer. Those guys had more money than anybody else in the world, and all the money in the world couldn't save them. And these things kill much more maliciously than, than cancers do many times. So uh the question came in from a guy we'll just call him Neil, and uh he said, should I get a gas mask, gloves, et cetera? Maybe you could do a, a show on preparing for a uh, pandemic specifically. Well, I've done it before, and if you go type pandemic into the search box, you'll find it, but I probably need to do it again. The reality is this. If we get into something that's highly contagious and moving around, the best course of action is going to be self-imposed quarantine. And my wife and I watched Contagion. I watched the whole thing. She watched half of it and fell asleep the other night. That's not a commentary on the show. I think she was just kind of beat from the day. Um, but, um, we, you know, we discussed it. We said, really, the, the thing you need more than anything else is lots of food, lots of water, and lots of medical supplies. And to be able to take care of yourself for a long time while the thing runs its course and you stay isolated from exposure. It's the only thing you really can do. A mask and gloves. I mean, all of these things can help. You know, sneeze in your sleeve, wash your hands, don't touch your face, whatever. All of that stuff can be somewhat helpful. Um, But in the end, um, if you get something that that, you know is is highly contagious, staying away from it is the best course of action. Next up today, uh, this comes from Matt. Matt says, "Jack, if you're going to purchase an AR and you don't currently own one, would you consider getting a 308 like the Sig 716 Patrol, or would you stick with the 556?" Thanks, man. Love the show. You make my drive to work doable. Matt, um, it, it, it's it's dependent on what you want to do with it to a large degree. But let's talk about why. Why is the military using 556? Uh, because you can carry a lot more ammo, you can supply a lot more people, it's very, very, very flat shooting, so we can use it in close range and long range. Um, it's easy to shoot, and it's easy to learn to shoot well. It has almost no recoil at all, especially in an AR frame with the recoil suppressor and all that going on with it, um, and it functions very, very well. So that's why people go with the 5.56. That's why the military, I should say, went with the 5.56. When we look at 7.62 or 3.08, we move up into a much more powerful caliber. We move up into something that if I was going to, like let's say this is going to be my rifle. This is this is my rifle, right? And this is the the rifle that I'm going to own. And it's going to be my survival gun. It's going to do everything I needed to do. I'm much more inclined to go out and shoot things like large feral hogs or deer or elk or something like that in a hunting scenario, including in many states it would have to be a shit-at-the-fan hunting scenario because the platform in quite a few states would be illegal for hunting in the first place. In some states, Texas, no problem. You want to go shoot feral hogs? You want to go shoot deer with a 308 uh, AR? No problem. Go Go for it. So... It's, it's more about, okay, if I'm going to have more power, but I'm going to have more weight, and I'm going to reduce my ability to carry ammo, but I'm going to get more power. Or I'm going to have less power, but I'm going to be able to carry more ammo with less weight. Or the same weight is a better way to look at it. For the same amount of weight, I'm going to get a lot more ammo than I'm going to be able to carry. So there's where you're going to make your decision on the practicality. Now, have you ever shot an AR before? Are you an experienced shooter? Or are you going to be learning to shoot this platform and specifically shoot high-powered rifles for the first time? If that's the question, get the 5.56 because the learning curve is shorter. That is another huge reason the military uses the 5.56 the, versus the 7.62. It's easier to train a person, put a weapon in their hands, teach them basic fundamentals, and get them shooting well with less recoil, less muzzle blast. It's just it's, It just is. And anybody would tell you that. Now, here's the great part of of being an owner of an AR. The lower part of that AR is the gun, the firearm, the weapon, however you want to call it, right? That's, That's the part you have to fill out the forms for. The upper is not. There's no reason you can't go later and get a 308 styled upper. So there are a lot of opportunities to do things with ARs. That's part of what makes them cool. Uh, so that would be something is to think about what is what do you want for the underlying platform so that you could change that going forward. And you could do the other thing, too. There's no reason you can't buy a 5.56 upper. Uh, they even make uppers that are designed to shoot 22 long rifles so you can practice a lot using the same platform. By the way that would be a great way to teach a new shooter is an AR platform using 22 long rifle that would be an awesome way to teach them uh... one thing I'll tell you that shooting ARs is a little different especially irons on ARs than just about any other gun you're gonna shoot and it would make sense to get somebody with some military training to do some basic riflemanship, rifle rifle training with you. Some BRM, things like the nose up on the charging handle, why that's done, the positions and all. It is a little bit different. When you go scoping them and all, it changes things kind of back to what you would normally expect. But if you're going to get an AR, I, I have a real big request for you guys out there. If you want to kit it up and make it look Star Trek and all, fine. Go shoot it as it was intended first. Learn to shoot it that way. Learn to shoot those irons. You take uh, just a little bit of training and you can teach people to hit targets that are you know, basically man-sized waist-to-head at 250 meters over and over and over with iron sights. And folks that are you know just a little bit more proficient can do the same thing at 300 meters. Um, in fact, you you need to hit a couple of those to qualify expert in the army uh, with with the uh, M16 uh, or I guess it's the the M4 now is what, what most of the guys are being issued. But back when I was in it was the M16. And I'll tell you what I, I grew up, I grew up hunting all my life. I grew up shooting all my life. I was a groundhog hunter uh, in the summer times because it was a great way to get farmers to let you shoot. And we would go out we'd shoot these groundhogs with like 22-250 or whatever with Big old scoped Remington 700 rifle a bipod. You know, you'd be popping these things at 400 yards, and and it, it was amazing to me when I picked up an M16 for the first time and was taught how to shoot it the way the military teaches you to shoot that platform. How quickly you become accurate at extended ranges with iron sights, because I just didn't shoot 200, 250 yard shots with iron sights. I just didn't do it. Uh, and that platform made me a believer in not only doing it, but how easy it can actually be with the right equipment. So those are my thoughts on the AR. In the end, you got to make your own decision. Next question here comes from David. David says, I'm behind the curve on having metals in my financial portfolio. After reading Patriots and Survivors, I think we need to have some small denominations, silver, quarters, dimes, etc. How do I determine a fair price when buying silver coins? Is there a formula based on spot silver price or face value or weight? Our silver coins are about ninety percent silver content. That is true. They are about ninety percent silver content. They are a traded commodity, like anything else. The 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 website that I generally use to get my pricing for silver and gold on, and platinum and palladium as well, is called Monex. M O N E X dot com. And if you go there, they'll try to sell you silver. And I've actually never bought from them. I just like the way they present the pricing. Model, And if you click on live prices, you'll go to a table and you'll see the live current prices, last change, how far it went up and down. You can look at a chart, plenty of different views. But just to give you an idea of what 90% silver coin goes for, um, it actually goes for more generally than the current bullion spot price, and significantly uh, a little bit under things like American Eagles. So I'll just give you some prices and you can kind of get a correlation in your head. Right now, at the very second that I'm reading this, the, the last purported price on silver spot, on just the bullion itself, just plain old silver, $29.69, the spot price for silver Eagles... 32 dollars and 57 cents now remember you're going to pay over spot spot is what the dealers pay spot is when you go to sell you should expect to get about spot so how do you think the dealers make money well they they create a price over spot that they sell back at 90 percent silver coins are trading for about 30.3 cents an ounce an ounce of uh, uh actual ounce of coins right so uh that's there's your correlation. You're looking at this, a little, just a little hair over the spot price on, on silver bullion uh, and uh, just a little bit, let's say, 3% less than silver eagles. And there's a couple reasons. You know, why would silver coin cost more than silver bullion? Well, one, even with junk silver, there's some collector value there. If you can, if you can read the dates and the, and the markings, there's some collector value there, some numismatic value. It also is worth money. If I have four silver quarters, pre-1964 silver quarters, I have a guaranteed dollar in my hand. If nothing else, if silver, if a meteor made of silver hits the ground tomorrow and brings us 5 million metric tons of silver and turns half the metal on earth into silver and silver becomes absolutely useless, can't happen, but just to be extreme, it's still worth a dollar. So there's an underlying currency value. As long as the American dollar is worth a dollar, four silver quarters are worth a dollar. That's part of it as well. But anything that sells and trades in large volume is probably going to have something akin to a spot price. You get outside of metal, they might call it something else. But there you go. As far as when you go to sell it, how do you know you're getting a fair price? You should get about spot. Somewhere near there. You might get a little less in some markets where things are moving quickly, maybe a little more. Um, You know, It's just it is that simple, I think it's another thing that people maybe make a little bit harder, and I think there's another question on this, so i 'll hold on talking any more about it uh Next question comes in for someone who wants to remain anonymous i don 't know why she wants to do that, but she does so i 'll leave it that way. Um, Anonymous question, Ron Paul is unelectable? Why does the conservative and liberal media both say Ron Paul is unelectable? And if he's unelectable, why does he keep winning straw polls and coming in high in caucuses and holding on to such a strong base of supporters? And if he's truly unelectable, what's the point of running? I'm not being snarky, I really want to know. Well, let me tell you the real reason that I believe that most people, most, not all, but most people in the media say Ron Paul is unelectable. They believe it. They absolutely believe that it's true. They can't see the guy winning. I think there's a concerted effort, especially by mainstream media, to marginalize the guy, and I think that in spite of that, he's come so far they can't do it anymore. I still believe that it's not straight-up malice for most commentators even if there's malice of intent, they really do believe what they're saying because I still have a hard time believing Ron Paul is electable as President of the United States. Okay, he did great in Iowa. He did great uh, in New Hampshire. But he didn't win either one. You don't do great you win or you don't win. If you're electable, that means you can win and you can win consistently. So now we have to see can how can Ron do in the Carolinas and Florida and how will Ron do across the rest of the country? I think he's in a much better spot than he was in the last election. I think he has to be taken seriously now. I think if some of these clowns that are not going to win would drop, some of their support might go to Paul, might balance it out against Romney. I don't really know. Um, my problem and why I don't think the guy's electable is I don't think he's really great at explaining what he wants to do. I think that you have to know what he wants to do, and then when he says it, you're like, of course! But he, I don't think he excels as an orator of coming out and going, we need to do this, 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 here's why, and here's how it works. I think he's getting better, uh, which is amazing to see someone that's been around as long as he has to be able, he has to be he has to be focusing on this. And still being able to, to improve at this stage in his life, and his career, is amazing. I have tremendous respect. Before I go further, again, I have to reiterate this, because I always get people mad at me when I say stuff that seems anyway negative about Paul. He is the only politician I have ever written a check to. I will probably write checks to him in the future, but no, I don't think he... he I, Kenwin is getting to be the wrong term. Will is the issue. I don't think in this political climate he will win the nomination. If he does, can he beat Obama? Yeah. I think it might be easier for a Ron Paul as a Republican nominee to beat Obama than a Mitt Romney. And I'll tell you why. Because most conservative voters are going to go, damn it, if that's what I got to do, that's what I got to do. I don't think a lot of conservative voters will turn around and go vote for Barack Obama. However, however, a tremendous number of anti-war supporters of Obama that thought they were getting an anti-war president and did not would vote for Ron Paul Uh, the other side though is there's a lot of those Obama supporters that uh, a libertarian is someone they are not going to support from an economic because they call it justice standpoint but I do think he can pull a lot of the the base, original first time base supporters of Obama over and if you can maintain and pull the base you win because every time you pull one it's two votes it's a, it's a two vote swing, right? If I pull one vote for my opponent, he gets one less and I get one more. It's a, it's a significant thing to pull a voter that normally would not vote for you and normally not, would not come to the polls at all. That's one vote gain. But what I can pull the person's, the person's supporter across, like Reagan did, that's when landslides happen. I'm not saying Paul would get a landslide, but, um, the bigger question here though, What is the point of running if he is not going to win? I think that that is a great question and it has a tremendously simple answer. People now understand what the Federal Reserve is. People now, in larger numbers than any time in our history, understand that inflation is a hidden tax. People now are beginning to question the, you know, the third rail of prohibition. Uh, of 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 controlled substances especially at the federal level if we're going to have if we're going to have methamphetamine be illegal fine but should the federal government be the one to decide exactly how that law is enforced or should the state of texas or the state of florida or the state of washington decide that when it comes to something like marijuana do you really care is it really and when they tell you stupid stuff like we got to keep drugs out of the schools and they can't keep drugs out of the prison so people are beginning to look at that and go, what, are, "What all this money we're in debt for, all this money that we send off to Washington and the state capitals, and all these billions of dollars that are being spent on this when it's just being imported from Mexico on a black market and making the cartels. So there's you know things there. That just the basic concept of individual responsibility and liberty is now ringing true. And here's the big thing. The people that are most receptive to Ron Paul aren't old farts like me and you. It's kids. These kids coming up in college today that have been just washed in, in 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 politically corrupt you know politically correct liberalism to where you know they come out of school and you can almost smell liberal and I don't mean it as a libertarian, I mean it's just like this, this socialist liberalism. It's just like it's imperme even with all of the full point full court press on them, they're going, nah. this doesn't make sense. This is what you told my dad, and look what he's got, and this doesn't make sense anymore, and they're looking for something different. The future of a nation always lies in its youth, and somewhere out there right now is the next Ron Paul, and maybe that person will be able to better convey the feelings, the thoughts, the emotions, and the duties, and that person is going to be followed by the young and the old alike that have been awakened to this reality, and that might lead back to something called the Constitution of the United States. Ron Paul is about a revolution, not an election. And that's something that all of his supporters, instead of just being mad at the media for what they say, and I'm mad too, so I understand, but you need to remember that. It's not about an election. It's about a revolution. It's about a dramatic shift in power in a relatively short period of time. And it took them over 200 years to turn the freest nation in the world to one of the more corrupt nations in the world and one of the most onerous nations in the world. And if it takes us a decade to take it back, that's a relatively short period of time. So remember, it's about a revolution, not an election. But, hey, if we can get them elected, we can speed up the revolution, right? Uh, a little story here from a guy named John. John says, I have one wheelbarrow. A few weeks ago it broke. I regularly use it to move firewood, move mulch, compost, and leaves, move heavy bags and lumber, move wood cutting tools, a chainsaw, bar oil, gasoline mixed dust mask, ear protector, headset, axe uh, wedges, and gloves, uh, move wood pruned from trees and shrubs, and move trash. You get the picture. One of my most important tools. Applying the tool is one and one is none wisdom uh, to my wheelbarrow. Never crossed my mind until it broke John. It, yeah, we probably need to pick up a second one. We had two in Texas, and the one was kind of an old beat-up metal one, and we, we just left it behind when we left. We, we probably do need another one. Uh, I did have um, a tire that kept going flat, and, of course, the tires have like a big tube inside them and all, and um, I wanted to see recently do I need to protect, replace that tube in there or can I fix it using that green slime stuff they sell back where bicycles are. And if you've never seen this, you go to like a Target or a Walmart or anything like that, go back where they sell the bicycles and look where they have the inner tubes and all. And you'll see this bottle It looks like like a squirt bottle and it'll have this green gooky gook and slick inside of it. And one bottle supposedly does two bicycle inner tubes, so I figured it would do about half of it into the, uh, into the uh, what do you call it, the uh, wheelbarrow tire. So I took it home. You have to pull the stem out of the, the the valve stem out of the valve to to get that stuff in there. The top of the uh, of the bottle though it ha- is a tool to get it out. I bought one of the little tire tools. In addition, it turned out I didn't really need it, but they're good to have anyway. You pull the stem out, stick that thing in there, and you just squeeze until you can't get any more in there. And it was about half I got in there. Put the valve stem back in. Aired it up, it hasn't gone flat in two weeks since. So uh, there's another little tip for you. That green slime might be some good stuff for things like bicycle tires. Uh, It's kind of like fix-a-flat for smaller vehicles, and it seems to work very, very well. Um, but, yeah, definitely two is one and one is none. should probably apply to wheelbarrows. And maybe you don't just do, maybe we don't go get another wheelbarrow. Maybe what we do is we go get one of them garden carts or something like that. But having, and that way you have two different things. Each specializes in a different area, but both are capable of doing the same types of things. Uh, definitely something you don't want to be without in a long-term uh, scenario if we end up needing to do a lot more things manually. Um, I want to cover this one really, really quick. And I'll let you guys read it yourself if you want to read the whole article. But there's an article I put out yesterday on Twitter and Facebook about what's going on in Greece. And I'm not even going to read the article to you. I'm just going to give you the summary of it. Basically, there are parents now who are basically leaving their children in the streets with a note on them that says, somebody please take care of them, I can't, or dumping them at churches and orphanages because they cannot afford to look after their children. Um... They're running out of everything. I mean, on, on from a health standpoint, they're even running out of aspirin as austerity measures take over. The bigger reason I, I wasn't going to put this on the air um, because I don't know enough about this yet, and I think some of this is sensationalized. And it might be, you know, this might have happened five times, and you read the article and makes it sounds like it's happening every five seconds over there now. So I, I tend not to, to cover things like that until I know more. This is why I'm putting it on. The comments on the Mail Online where this article is published, and the comments on my Facebook page when I put this out. Just basically bashing the crap out of these people that are doing this to their kids. I understand the sentiment, but how far up your ass is your head when you're doing that? Do you have any idea how bad it must be for a mother to drop her child off at an orphanage? We don't know what it's like to go through what these people are going through, and we may find out. And I know some of you you'd lay down your life for your kids, but what if what if you get to a point where that's not enough? It is so easy to sit back with your head up your fourth point of contact and talk crap about other people when you're not dealing with what they're dealing with. The country is imploding. And you better pay attention, and I'll tell you why. If you went there 2 years ago, it was a country that looked and felt much like the United States, and in a lot of ways felt a lot better than the United States. Now we all know the road that led there was ridiculous amounts of socialism, that's fine. Do you think that we're going to just blame the people and the children now though? What we need to be looking at is how can we help these people instead of bashing them and saying some really horrible crap, and any one of you that's spoken very, very ill and very, very horribly about the people that have had to make these choices, you should be ashamed of yourself. And if you're pissed at me for that, I don't care. Because that's how I feel. You should be ashamed of yourself. I want you to think, if you're a parent, what would it take? What would it take where you would turn your child over to somebody else and then realize that for these people, maybe that's what happened? Think about the fact that parents... Uh, that were, were Jewish parents in World War II would basically take children that were old enough to be away from their mothers and be taken care of by somebody else and basically hide them with families so that when they went to the concentration camps, their kids didn't go with them. Were those horrible people too because they gave their kids up knowing that it was the only chance they could give them? Some of these people may be doing this. They may be wrong, but some of them may be doing it because they believe it's the only chance that the kid has. Some of them believe if I, if I drop them somewhere at an orphanage or something, they'll at least feed them, and I cannot, I'm i not going to sit at home and watch. I'm going to starve, so should my child starve too? That's, that's the choice these people are making, folks. Please understand, you don't think it can happen here. I mean, it can happen here. If it can happen to Greece, it can happen in the United States. Much happier note. Uh, this comes to me from Kevin. Kevin says, I live in Oklahoma City. Recently attended the Horticulture Industry Show in Tulsa. Met a guy by the name of Mark Shepard. I'm gonna to have to get this guy on the on the air. I'm gonna tell you guys right now. I almost want to go to his farm and video some stuff. I'd really like to get up there and see this. His uh, website is forestag uh, forestag.com, forest, com. Forestag dot com. dot com. This guy is amazing. I'll give a bulleted list of what he does. Over 100 acres of farm scale permaculture in Wisconsin. 10,000 apple trees with a cidery. Let me say that again. 10,000 apple trees. Grapevines, caneberries, morals growing at the base of apple trees. Morals are expensive mushrooms if you don't know. Sunflowers, of which three acres worth squeezed for oil that is used to power his diesel VW Jetta, like a more already, and tractors. So he grows all his own fuel by using sunflower oil. Hazelnuts for oil, chestnuts, his nut husks are burned, gasified, and run a generator for electricity. Yes, he's read alcohol can be a gas and lives it. He grows pine nuts, pork. His pork is grass-fed, and then hazelnut, apple, and chestnut finish, kind of like expensive stuff from Spain. Oh, I want to get my hands on that. That's sounds <laughs> like amazing meat. He does beef. The farm is entirely solar and wind-powered, and I guess biofuel-powered as well. Uh, farm equipment-powered. Uh, Anyways, I thought you should know about him. I put a bug in his ear about your show. He's headed off to another conference now, Grassworks Grazing Conference, where his presentation will immediately follow Joel Salatin's. So I'm going to get in touch with this guy after we get back from SHOT Show. I'll put a link to his uh, his show out for you guys today. Um, it, it's pretty amazing. He he also sells a lot of like trees and cuttings and things like that as well and uh, he's available for consulting and and other things and I'll see if we can get him uh on the air and if I can make it work with some trip in the future man I'd love to get on this guy's site and video this stuff and, and get more exposure for him and more information for you guys so we'll see what we can do with that um next up today is uh, another uh another concern with uh pandemic And I'm just going to give you a real quick summary and you can read the article if you want to, but the headline is lethal viruses could leap continents in bushmeat trade. Uh, And basically what we're dealing with here is that uh, one of the biggest things that they uh that that, you know it's prized in Africa is what they call bushmeat, which is anything and everything you can kill in the bush. And a lot of it's made into biltong or dried out in large amounts or smoked. And then it's sold within Africa, but a lot of it now is being exported. It's being smuggled out to Europe and North America in recent years. And they did a raid on some of these illegal smuggling, and they found quite a few different uh, viruses. And then this is the gross part. Um, where they found the viruses that literally have the potential to harm you and me, Uh, baboons, chimpanzees, manga bays, uh, and green monkeys. Green monkeys, of course, being the source of the AIDS virus by most accounts. Um, the rodent meat, rodent meat, uh, appeared to be free of pathogens. And I would imagine that means like any kind of planes game or anything else was free of pathogens. But of course, we share a lot in common with things like chimpanzees and, 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 and monkeys, uh, and baboons. So these guys are sending dried out, smoked out monkey meat uh, to North America with viruses and bacteria that are capable of infecting human beings. And uh, that's one really, you know, they talk about an outbreak of monkeypox uh, that infected dozens of people across several U.S. states. It was traced to an animal dealer near Chicago where an imported Gambian giant rat gave the virus to prairie dogs and were later, later sold to families as pets. Uh, so if that can happen, what can happen when people are eating this stuff? Um, I, I've never understood the, the desire for monkey meat in the first place. I think there are certain animals that are too close uh, for me to feel comfortable eating. I have to be really hungry to eat a monkey. Um, and I just think there's a lot of potential then for uh, cross-species contamination. So that's another one I wanted to make you aware of. That the, the big reason I even put something like that out is because we're all aware of flu and things like smallpox and all. But to me, the one that's going to get us on a global level as a pandemic, epidemic type thing is going to be something no one sees coming. Because we're going to be completely unprepared when some kind of monkey virus or something uh, mutates through a pig or something, it comes out the. Other- you know, we have no idea uh, what Mother Nature has in store for us in the future. So it's a good reason to just be um, prepared in general at all times. This one comes in to me from Cody and it ties right back into this last one in a weird way. It says, Jack, can I make Bill Tom with wild goose breast? I've already made it with venison and beef. It doesn't stay around very long. Yum. Um, I don't know. My instinct is it wouldn't come out very good. Goose, even wild goose, is very very heavy on fat. That's one of the things that makes it so delicious when you roast it. Oh, goose fat and goose meat. Yum. Um, but Fatty meat generally doesn't make good biltong. It gets very waxy, and it tastes not quite so good. It also concerns me with things like salmonella. Biltong is mostly made with red meat, uh, not goose meat. Now, I have done research, and in the past, they've made biltong from chicken. But to me, there's a huge salmonella risk there, and it was a different time and all. I, I don't know, but my instinct would be the goose is better off in the oven, roasted and cooked up than uh, made into biltong. I personally would not do it, but I can't tell you that it definitely would go bad if you did. It, it might work, but again, biltong is best made with the leanest cuts of meat we can get our hands on. Goose is extremely fatty, so even if there wasn't a safety issue, I just don't think you're going to get the kind of results you're looking for. Some people, though, are blessed, and they live in places where geese have gone nuts on population, and you have very long seasons and liberal bag limits. And if you go out and start shooting geese to the tune of half of a day in the dove field, so you're you know, coming home with six geese or something, and you do that a few times, you end up with a lot of goose. And then people wonder, well, do I just want to eat roasted goose every day for the next six months? Is there anything else I can do with it? I can tell you something that's fabulous, absolutely fabulous, goose sausage. Goose made into sausage is amazing, and it's fatty enough you really don't need to mix any other meat in with it. It pretty much can stand alone, seasoned up nice. If You get a good sausage stuffer and some casings and experiment with it. And a little bit of pork here and there, a little bit of beef mixed in, or doing things that kind of enhance it, like you put together, maybe you make goose sausage out of like, let's say two gooses, right? So two geese, and we, we're gonna make sausage. But then we've, you know, gutted six. Take your 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 liver and your heart from all of those and grind that into your sausage. It it, it, it you now that way it's not overpowering, but it brings more flavor and it's really really nutritious and good for you. The organ meats that we throw away today have some of the greatest nutritional quality out there. So that's another idea you could do with your geese. Um, last one of the day, kind of a downer to end on, but I'm going to put it up anyway just because it's another one of those Jack's right and doesn't want to do things. Uh, remember, I've coined the phrase, as far as I know, downward class migration to describe what I see is people not just an erosion of like just the middle class, but people at all class levels sliding one class level down uh the term that mainstream media has decided to use now that they're finally talking about it you know a year and a half after I started talking about it is downward mo- mobility and i've heard that one quite a few times recently this is on an article that came out uh january 13th of friday And I'm going to read some of it to you, and then I'm going to close up for the day. Downward mobility, pushing the American dream out of reach. The quest for the American dream has been part of the country's culture and social fabric for generations, but increasing numbers of middle-class Americans are finding that destination doesn't exist anymore. Among them is Sam Blick. A 48-year-old construction appraiser who has never married and lives alone in Denver. After 10 years with the same company, Blick was called into his sales manager's office one morning last May in the middle of a typical work week. He just basically stated, Sam, you've seen the projects decrease in number, and I'm sorry to have to tell you we're going to have to lay you off. There was no promise of a rehire if things get better, Blick told Fox News in an interview in his home last week. I just kind of sat there in, in stunned silence. Since then, Sam has begun collecting state unemployment insurance and hunted for jobs nonstop. But at this point, having become one of the long-term unemployed, someone who spends longer than 26 weeks to find a new job, Sam has resigned to the prospect that he will have to take a salary cut of about 50% and to never again enjoy the annual boating, fishing, and Disneyland vacations in which his father, a middle-class manager at Denver Utility Company, used to take Sam and his brother on in the early 70s. The concept and the idea of the American Dream is still there, he says, but I don't see that happening for myself or several of my family members. It's just not in the works because we just can't afford it, he said. Blick's story is emblem, emblem, emblematic of a larger decades-long trade. Uh, trend, which was recently documented by Pew Charitable Trust in its report, Downward Mobility from the Middle Class, Waking Up from the American Dream. Researchers tracked the economic well-being of American babies born like salmon to the middle class back in the mid-60s. The report's sobering findings that one-third of such babies had, by the time they'd become adults, fallen out of the middle class. So one-third of kids born in America into the middle class have fallen out from 1960s till today. They still don't get it, in my opinion. They still don't get it. They're saying these people are falling out of the middle class. They're not understanding it. See, this is what I talked about with the song Allentown. Allentown was about a shift. I talked about that last week. The shift now, if I could explain this better, might be like this. Hold your left hand up. Uh, so your your palm is facing your face. Your fingers are, are are horizontal to the floor, so they're they're pointing across the room. And you look at your pinky, your ring finger, your 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 index finger, and your pointing finger. Uh, and and you, you think of those those four fingers as your classes. And you got your lower class, your middle class, your upper middle class, and your affluent. Just though, and there's you know subclasses and classes higher and lower than both. But just you're looking at those four classes. Now take your right hand, okay, and put it behind. Your left hand. So you can see through your fingers to the hand behind you. And that's, that's the, the, the social structure and the economic structure behind it. Leave every, all your four fingers in place and move your right hand down. The whole damn economy slides. The people are static. It's not that they're falling out of the middle class, what middle class means, because the numbers are what make the middle class. The middle class is the middle class because there's the most people that work for a living are there. And a middle class lifestyle today is based on the income that was into the middle class. And we can go to different points in different times in history and always find a middle class. But what it meant to be middle class is very, very different. So in the 1930s, being middle class did not mean what it meant today. You didn't have as much stuff. You didn't have as much resources. You didn't have as much money. But it was still the middle class. And that's what these folks don't get. They're believing that the middle class lifestyle is static and people are falling out of the class. When what's actually happening is the classes themselves are migrating downward. The quality of life that you get as a middle class person is what's in decline. And the people that are maintaining that class, they're actually in an upward mobility, apparently, because they look like they're actually moving a class up or they're staying where they were. And that's becoming what it means to be upward. So the person that maintains their quality of life that used to be middle class, is now upper middle class if they maintain it. And everybody else, the middle class itself, its significance is sliding. I don't know if you understand how big a difference that is. To infer that the people are slipping from the classes means the class itself is still solid. And there's a way back into it. But if the class itself, the meaning of the class itself is sliding downward, then your only hope to maintain your lifestyle is to claw yourself an income up enough or to reduce your expenses enough that your income offsets and to actually move into what previously was the higher class. It's so much more damning on a national level because there's only so much room as you go further up. There's only so much room at the affluent layers because for every affluent person, there has to be a given number of people that are more of a -a work-a-day person. It's just how – and it's not to put anybody down or to say that the affluent person is living on the backs of the middle class, but they are. I don't mean that predatory, though. If if you're affluent and you run a couple gas stations that do service work and tires and pumps gas, you own four or five of those, and you employ all the people in those gas stations, and you pay them well for the job, right? You're not going to be stupid and pay somebody $100,000 a year to pump gas. You're just not. But you pay them for what they do, a fair wage. They're the middle class. You're the affluent, you're living on their backs, but you're also providing them a job. But there's only so much room for the owner-operator level, the entrepreneur layer. And there's only so many, and the other part of that is only so many people that are cut out for it. A lot of people don't want it. They just want it. My wife doesn't want to be an entrepreneur. Right. When she was when she was working as a nurse, and I'd say, you know, you could you know use this as an opportunity to become the officer. I don't want to do that. I want to go to work. I want to do my job. I want to be damn good at my job. I want to take care of those kids. I want to inform the parents. And when when the, when the when the bell rings, so to speak, at five o'clock, I want to say, have a nice day. I'll see you tomorrow. And I'll do my job good. And I'll show up every day. And I'll do it wonderful. I'll be very proud of it. But I want an eight to five job, and that's it. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's the majority of people, and there's not a damn thing wrong with that but that means that those people are forever stuck in the middle they're the hard-working people that earn a wage that make up the majority of working people and you've got the people that are would be at the poverty level below them and most of those people Do not work. And then you got this little thin layer of the working poor hovering right at the bottom of what the middle class was. Here's the scary part for everybody. Those that stay in the middle are about to start living a lifestyle very similar to what the working poor have been doing. And what that means for the working poor is really bad. But that's the reality. That's the economic shift that's going on right now. Can that change? Yes. How does it change? We have to fix the underlying problem. And until the people in Washington and the people to your left and right have enough guts to do it, this is our future. This is why we have to work so hard to be able to do more with less, to establish our lifestyles in a way that's sustainable. Increase the income or decrease the expense or smart, do both. That's the way forward. That's the way to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. know it's on our TVs Sometimes we forget We are what we eat I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way